Before we jump in this week, let me give you a quick disclaimer. The fact that we're talking about Blood and Honor for three weeks is not an endorsement for Blood and Honor. It's pretty flawed and problematic, even sexist. We're talking about it for three weeks because we have a lot of feelings about it, negative and positive. And exploring those with Mike has been a great way to explore what we do and don't like about gaming in general. And Blood and Honor highlights some real problems that I have specifically GMing. We found these conversations useful. We hope you do too. RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me today is Mike. Hello, Dusty. And we are missing Brian once again for this entire Blood and Honor series. Today is the last, uh, it's the third part in our three-parter on Blood and Honor. Uh, Mike, I think I'll be glad to talk about something else for a while. How about you? Yeah, this was uh, this is definitely interesting to kind of jump into it. It's just a, a very slim down one shot, especially since it's been a while since we've played anything else. But yeah, definitely ready to move on. Fair enough. So today, we had this idea quite a while ago to do a SWOT analysis. And we were like, oh, what great content that would be. But then we couldn't figure out what to SWOT analyze. Yeah, I... Uh... I think it was kind of when we were in that period between transitioning between that that dungeon crawl and the uh, the frozen game, and there just wasn't anything to really analyze between the two. So we're going to do our first ever SWAT analysis of Blood and Honor. Now, let me say a few things about about SWAT. SWAT is a framework for analyzing intangible concepts, processes, teams, and in this case, games. Now, when I say framework. So SWAT is just one axis more complex than a pros-cons list. SWAT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So picture a two-by-two grid. On one axis, you're looking at good and bad. On the other axis, you're looking at internal and external. Now, good and bad are intuitive. Those are your pros and cons. But internal and external is what makes this just a bit more complex than a pros-cons list. Internal and external forces you to consider whether the pro or the con that you're listing is inherent to the concept itself or if it's the result of an outside influence. So the internal good are the concept's strengths. The internal bad are the concept's weaknesses. The external good are the concept's opportunities. And I'm going to pause here. This bears emphasizing. Often in business speak, opportunity is a euphemism for problem. That's not the case here. Opportunities in SWOT analysis are positive. They are positive things, but they're just outside the concept that benefit the concept. Favorable favorable conditions, you might say. And then finally, the external bad are the concept's threats. So you can see how SWOT's a great way to have a complete conversation about a concept. It forces you to think a little more deeply about what's going on. But let me emphasize before we start. SWOT is qualitative, not quantitative. There is no SWOT score. You can't count up the pieces of feedback to arrive at a net score. Just like a pros-cons list, there will always be cons, no matter how great the concept is. But, you know, the con could be piddling, or the the pros could be piddling and, and minor. So you have to qualify them yourself. So qualitative, not quantitative. In fact, 
As you listen to Mike and I capture our feedback, you may disagree with where we put it. We might capture a threat that you think is a weakness. You might be right. We might both be right. So let me emphasize that this is a tool to make sure you have a thorough discussion, not a quantifiable right-wrong scorecard. Okay, having said that, Mike, let's launch right in. Why don't we talk about the strengths first? So Blood and Honor, the system, what are the strengths? So I think uh, I think it does have quite a few strengths, mainly in uh, and just kind of how it operates overall. It does some unique things that uh, some other some other games don't do that that make it interesting, and and I think that that really draws out some of the strengths that this game has. Right. So I think the first thing we ran into when when creating my character was that you create your clan first and then your character. Um, so it's 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 unique to do that right i can't think of any 20 uh 20 sided dice game or, or anything else that we've played where you have to come up with your concept of you as a nation that that everyone has to align on and agree to and uh to make you focus on those collaborative objectives before you can start focusing on the objectives of of you as the individual with the character um I think for you and I, it was a little easier because it was just me. So I was able to say, okay, my clan in this situation is me. And these are the characters of my clan that I will then, you know, reflect in my creation of the character. It'd be interesting to see how this would work out with actual people at the table trying to collaborate and agree on what are what are the characteristics of my clan? What are our objectives? Yeah, but I think you're right. I, I love the idea of rolling the clan first. I love the idea of defining your own clan. And you've got choices to make. And, and I think John Wick, the designer of Blood and Honor, does a good job of outlining those choices. You know, what are your holdings? What type of daimyo do you have? You know, there's seven types of daimyo to choose from. There are all these choices that add up to some pretty interesting mechanics as you're rolling up your clan. And then you turn that right into rolling up your characters and, and making your characters part of that clan or part of another clan, the whole clan then character thing, it really landed with me. It landed with me in a positive way. And in fact, it also helps land a really core concept of the game right up front, which is that this is not the GM's world. With so many RPGs, it's the GM's world and you're just playing in it. But that's not the case here. And and that starts with character creation where the players get to create clans. And it also, it, it rolls right through to the main mechanic, Mike, the next strength that I would list would be privilege. Privilege is an interesting concept, and I don't mean privilege in the in the sociology way. I mean privilege in, in the way that John Wick refers to it, which is that when you win your dice roll, you get privilege, and privilege means you get to say what happens next. So we could square off in a duel, you know, an NPC and a PC, and the PC could win, and the PC might choose to lose the duel, but in a really favorable way. Like, hey, I, I won privilege, so I get to say what happens next, and I say, you know, I maneuvered myself out of the way of his blow, I grabbed the back of his katana, and I purposely pricked my thumb on the very tip of the katana so that he drew first blood, so that he won and he gets to keep his honor, but it was such a display of mastery for me that my reputation grows. You can do neat stuff like that, because winning privilege doesn't mean you won an attack roll against AC and all it means is you hit. It means that you get to say what happens next, period. Um, it's such a wildly different concept. Privilege is the first thing I fell in love with as I as I read the book. I uh, I'll agree with that. I actually struggled 
with privilege a bit, and I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later on uh, some of the weaknesses of the game, right? So depending on how you play games or the type of person you have at your table, that could turn into a weakness. But I agree that the concept of privilege as itself is 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 very unique and makes it a strength. I can't think of any other game I've played where players at the table get to dictate you know truths about the game universe. And it's literally that, right? You win your role, you get to dictate a truth. Um, and I think combining that with the, the risks and the wager system makes that even more interesting, right? If you feel confident in your ability uh, to dictate the truth, you then can take that a step higher and say, I feel so confident about this that if I succeed, I then get to make additional dictations about the truth. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think with the right wager, you know, you, you really could steer the direction of the game in a, in a way that no one else at the table is thinking about. And that could, that could create some really interesting conflicts and add some real depth to the story. Yeah. So what Mike's referring to is our third strength, which is which are risks and wagers. So privilege, risks, and wagers, these are the core concepts of the game. And whenever you roll dice, you're making a risk. If you give up one of your dice to say an additional truth if you win, that's a wager. And privilege is when you win the roll, that's what you – you get the privilege to say these truths about what happened. Um the mechanics for risks and wagers are you have a pool of D6s. Various things add D6s to your pool. Some things take away D6s from your pool. But if you're going to – you're always rolling for 10 no matter what. 10 is your DC no matter what, and you're adding up these D6s. Well, if you've got five D6s or six D6s, you're going to hit a 10. If you give up one or two of those, in addition to the truth you get to say by winning privilege, you get to say if you give up two dice, two more truths for a total of three. So – Really simple mechanics, but interesting. Mike, I can't remember now, even though we just did this the other day. Did you actually make any wagers? Uh, I think I did one, and I can't remember what. But I was, I was for the most of the game, I was scared to make those wagers, right? So I didn't feel comfortable in the system yet. I didn't even know really what to do with privilege when I had it. I was still shaky on how to do it. So in that in that playthrough i didn't feel at the time that having additional truths additional privileges could could benefit me too much since i didn't know what i was doing yet fair enough so the fourth strength aging i would not have listed this as a strength probably i liked it but i i didn't like it as much as you you really liked aging talk about why did you like aging so much I really clung to this because in, in all the games we've played so far, there hasn't been like a really solid mechanic for aging. Or if there has been a mechanic for aging, it's been kind of clunky and difficult to track and then doesn't really make an impact on anything. I felt uh, I felt this game was one of the first games that had an aging mechanic that that made a real difference to your character. There were there were benefits and withdrawals or uh, drawbacks. Drawbacks, yes, thank you. There are benefits and drawbacks from aging that made a significant impact to your character. Um, to, to have it take place in the mechanics, and I think having it aligned with the the the, the seasons, I thought that was that was a really nice touch. Let's cover the weaknesses. So weaknesses, remember, these are things that are internal to the game, but that are bad or, or negative so players <laughs> yeah. only only a certain type of player uh and by certain type i mean mature only a certain type of player can really play this game mike uh you had me add this one tell me what you're thinking here 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of going back to, we, we've all encountered that type of players where, or that type of player, where their measure of success for winning at RPGs is, you know, proving that they're the smartest guy in the room. They're going to do everything they can to try and unravel the DM's games. They're going to try and do things to crush other players' agencies to prove that they're the quote-unquote best at the game, right? So you you kind of have that problematic player who who's not there to to tell a a uh, collaborative story who's who's approaching it as like a game of risk or something like that and and not exactly maybe quite getting what rpg is for um and i think that player just would not work out in this game right because the primary uh, agency of the player in this game is dictating the truth. So if he's going to try and quote unquote win this game by being superior to all others, he's going to do nothing but try and dictate other people's truths. Yeah, even more so than D and D, this is a this is not a game you can win. There's no winning in this game. D and D, there's there's no winning either, and the book emphasizes that. But you could see very easily how D&D could be misinterpreted as winning. If you succeed in the adventure, you've won the adventure. When you defeat the bad guy, you've won the fight. This is so story-driven with the whole privilege concept that winning is just more foreign here. And those types of players not only will be bad for your game, I think they'll be miserable. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would see them not enjoying this game at all. So it's a niche game. How about that? The, 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 yeah. A better way to state the weaknesses, this game would not have massively broad appeal across every D&D player ever. The, 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 with the Venn diagram of D&D players and Blood and Honor players, there would be overlap of people who would enjoy it, but it, it would not even be close to 100% overlap. I think another way to say it is this is not a game you could play at a con Right. It, it's not something you can take a group of five semi strangers or, you know, complete strangers and have them sit down and, and play one shots with with, I think, any measure of success. I would love the parallel universe in which you could take this game to con. And I think you probably could if it was not an RPG convention. If it was like a convention of improv actors, you could completely take this game to con. But. In my experience running games at Con, Mike, you're right. You generally get a passive table of strangers who don't know each other, and it'll be really hard to get them to put their necks out and just start making up truths about the universe. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's a great point about, you know, a convention of, you know, maybe people who have a lot of uh, experience at collaborative storytelling or, you know, maybe, maybe like an author's conference, right? Uh, Improvisationalist slash authors con 2019. (laughs) Yeah. With with the right audience who are self-selecting to be a part of this game, um, just a bunch of, of storytellers. This could be a hell of a game uh, at a con, even with strangers. But yeah, in my experience at con, you've got a table of people who are looking to be, passengers on the adventure on this adventure that you created and they get to sort of go along for the adventure they're not looking to make waves and make splashes anyway so good point yeah a certain type of player i think we've we've talked about that quite a bit overly mechanical this was mine this game is boros concepts from fate game obviously doesn't use the fate or fudge die However, it uses aspects with invokes and compels and all that, and I have always found Fate to be so mechanical. You cannot do anything without staring at your character sheet. There's no obvious choices you can make, even in roleplay. 
everything is is built from the character sheet. The same is true here. There's so much referencing and reading and God during character creation transcribing as you write down the aspect that you're, or the aspects that you're choosing and their invokes and their compels and trying to fit that on the character sheet. God, this game is mechanical as hell. It is a very mechanical game. I think uh, one of the things I was trying to think as we played, you know, thinking how you would operate this game as a GM, right? With the the super specific invoke and compels, you literally have to memorize all these conditions of each of your players at the table, right? And so every every choice you make as trying to manage the game. You're having to keep in your head, you know, am I adjudicating these rules properly to these very specific properties on the character sheet through Invoke and Compels? And and I think that definitely works against it because in, in any other RPG game, you can have a, a sense of a person's character. You, you have, you know, be it alignment or just kind of how they operate at the table as long as you're in, in Flavortown, right, you're okay but in, in this game, it's super specific, and there are super specific actions that have to be taken if the player character chooses a, a, a certain decision. And I think yeah. that's that's hard to manage. You and I both theorized that this game might be more fun with more people because different people could step in and exercise privilege and take the spotlight and you know contribute different ideas at different times. But I will never run that game. I will never run that game because of exactly what you're saying. As GM, I've got to keep up with all that. And my way around it, as you know, and as we talked about, is I built a very – I'm frankly very proud of this Google Google Sheets work, workbook that I built where every character can be a sheet, every NPC can be a sheet, and I can go reference that stuff in the workbook because I made this thing where you can make your clans and make your characters all from this workbook. Even with the workbook, I'd have to pause the game to be like, oh, hang on, I'm about to interrupt Brian's character. Let me – Hey guys, take five, and I'm having to read through Brian's character again to remember the invokes and compels that he chose. Like, my God, you're right. It's so specific, and there's so much. I would be crippled trying to run this for a group. And this is kind of a broader concept that doesn't fit on the SWAT mic, but the SWAT's leading us to have this conversation. My biggest problem, well, there's I have a lot of big problems with this game. One of my biggest problems with this game is it doesn't know what it wants to be. It wants to be a rules light, story driven narrative game, but it's sure got an awful lot of damn rules for a rules light game. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things I even struggled with in creating a character. Right, was seeing not until the end had I finished my character of thinking of how all these different things string together. Right, so you got your your benefits from your clan, you got your benefits from your abilities, you got your benefits from three or four other sources. And it's not until you get to the end of creating a character that you can even see kind of how this mechanic works to to generate you know, your your numbers for being successful at, at creating privilege. So from a GM perspective, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't even begin to fathom how to keep all that straight, right? And I have a feeling when a lot of people play this game, the GM doesn't catch a lot of that. So the the players may have in mind kind of what their what their uh, what, what their invokes are, but I bet there's a lot of things that should be compelled that just aren't ever compelled. And I think that's that's probably an overall weakness to this game, right? Is is it's definitely player sided because the GM just can't keep up with all of it. Yeah. So imagine giving a troop of improv actors like a bunch of sheets of paper 
with their with their invokes and compels and benefits and clan benefits and all that, and then being like, hey, go. Now, that troop of improv actors are the right people to tell a fun story. And they're the right people to take advantage of that whole mechanic of privilege. But you give them all that paper, to your point, and you're constraining the hell out of them and not constraining them in a way where constraints make for interesting story choices. No, you're constraining them in a way where you're crippling their ability to improv. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. Speaking of which, holy God, the character sheet is not up to the task at all. The character sheet included in the book doesn't have nearly enough room or information to to record a blood and honor character. I did a spreadsheet, and it was tons and tons of rows and sections and lots of filling out. None of that fits on the character sheet in the back of the book. Like, none of it. It's completely not up to the task at all. I think you had, what, 10 to 11 hidden tabs in order to populate all the uh, dropdowns and the VLOOKUPs and the returns? Yeah, and the character sheet would print in very small print on a, on a legal size paper, the one that I did. I had to I had to zoom in on the Excel spreadsheet just because I was having trouble reading this miniaturized font in Excel. Yeah. Well, Google Sheets, but yes. Or Google Sheets, I'm sorry. Yes. No, 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 no. I just want to be specific. Um, Yeah, there's just a ton of text and a ton of information there that the game requires you to have and keep up with. And none of it fits on the out-of-the-box character sheet. So, so what headspace are you occupying when you make this incredibly mechanical game and then you design a character sheet that is so half-assed it's ridiculous? I wonder if maybe that was their justification of saying, hey, look, it's rules light. Here's a super simple character sheet that doesn't work with the mechanics of the game at all. Yeah. And it, 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 it made me I fell in love with this game. Well, I feel I feel betrayed by the game. I fell so in love with it um, and then discovered stuff when I actually got under the hood and started ticking around. I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, weaknesses, misogyny, uh, misogyny. There's a whole chapter on women. I say chapter. It's not really true. There's a chapter on players, and there's a paragraph on playing women characters. And the paragraph basically says, you can do it, but you're going to get no respect, and you have to fight twice as hard as the man. And, you know, but have, but, but that's going to be more fun for you, right? Because it's obstacles, and that makes for great storytelling, right? Yeah. Right, Mike? Right? Enjoy your time at the table being oppressed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's abs- and what makes that such a strange choice to even include that paragraph is the fact that in the introduction 120 pages before this he says and this is not an exact quote but it's close hey you know i've covered over a lot of the uglier aspects of feudal japan just like D covers over the, the, the more ugly aspects of feudal europe and and of course john's right john wick is right um there are ugly things that would be no fun to play but why say that in the intro and then still include a chapter on you can play a woman character if you really want to have a much harder time because that's what you enjoy, right? It's it's absurd. It, it's absurd. I ignored the paragraph. I, I'm pointing it out now to say, hey, you know, maybe consider not buying the game if you're if you're not into that. Um, and maybe it is my privilege as a white male to to read that paragraph and have the ability to simply roll my eyes and say, well, I'm still gonna try this game out, but I will never use this paragraph. Maybe that's my white male privilege. Maybe if I was a a female, and I read that, and I I would just throw the game, throw the book aside, and never even try it. What do you think, Mike? I, I agree with you, and um, I think it kind of goes back to the conversation we had in setting up this this SWAT grid, where you know we were having a conversation of is the misogyny internal or external to the game, and 
yeah, the, the conclusion was it would have been super simple not to even mention it, right? So if if that's something a GM or a player group or players themselves wanted to include in the game, they can make that decision on their own for him to just put it out there that it's like, hey, if you play a woman, you're going to have a bad time. That's unnecessary, right? So that's that's making it internal to the game. It's making it part of how to play this game is to include some misogyny. Yeah. And what, uh, yeah, I don't know. He, it, there's, he could have done it so differently. That paragraph adds nothing to the game. And there are so many things he could, he could have done differently. He could have had a whole chapter on, Hey, if you want to have, you know, if you want to play with the notions of society and you want to be an underdog or you want to be a, you know, sort of an outsider, here are things you can do to play as an outsider. Here are things you can do. And if it, if mentioning, gender had been one part of this more holistic conversation, then maybe that would have been more interesting and fun and at least would have been presented as, hey, here are some options. But just presenting it as, in this world of blood and honor, playing as a woman's really hard, but you're going to have fun with that. So go have fun with that. It's just it's baffling. There's so many baffling choices, but we've spent so much time on the weaknesses. I think, I think the audience at home will get a sense for how we feel about the game overall. Let's talk about the opportunities, Mike. Those things that are not a part of the game, but that affect the game in a positive way. And the first one I put is the fairly recent L5R 5th Edition role-playing launch. And just the whole acquisition of the L5R brand by Fantasy Flight Games. There's a lot of attention on Samurai games right now. Blood and Honor came out in 2010. Um, Big opportunity here for John Wick to maybe edit the manuscript up a little bit. Remove some of the, you know, remove the whole section on women. Remove some other stuff. And relaunch this game, billing his uh, participation, or frankly, creation of the first edition of the L5R role-playing game. Um, there's a big opportunity here, external to the game, that, that, that could create some positive momentum um, for getting this game into more players' hands. That's that's one thing. Mike, you want to talk about the Ninja Turtles slash anime generations of, of players? Well, I think it's that exact same thing that's kind of, you know, pushing the popularity between behind the, the L5R 5E launch, right, is that, you know, over the last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years now, there has been a huge drive in Western culture focusing on Eastern culture. So you've got a big drive in anime, you, you've got, you know, all these new subcultures that, that you know, identify themselves as Japanophiles, whatever word you want to use for that affiliation for Eastern culture. You know, not even just Japan, but, you know, China, the whole the whole Eastern continent. But with a specific focus on Japan, um, there's been a huge drive in that popularity, entire subcultures, entire markets driven to it. And I think this fits right in with this, right? It, it might not be that same specific anime subculture, but you always can make a callback to feudal Japan whenever you start talking about you know that that affiliation with uh being a fan of japan uh, just in general yeah there's a big audience here there's a big yeah. potential audience here all right threats bookkeeping we've sort of already covered this in weaknesses uh just collaboration between players collaboration of the players invoking and compelling or compelling the npcs aspects and npcs compelling the players aspects and all that it just requires a ton of bookkeeping if you tried to use the inadequate character sheet you'd have to make copies of it for your friends and for the gm or just constantly you know the gm if we play this purely with paper character sheets mike i'd constantly be like hand me your character sheet for a second let me look at your let me look at your aspects again 
hand me your character sheet again. Let me look at this. Let me look at that. Let me look at this. It'd be, it, it's just the bookkeeping is insane. And I made that external. We made that external because of all the work that I put into, you know, the, the Google Sheets workbook to sort of put this UI and collaboration layer over the game to try to make it playable. And it's just, it, bookkeeping is a big problem here. Bookkeeping is a big, big problem here. I think the other half of it too, right? So if it if it wasn't just you and me, if we had a group of people playing this, when when you have four to five people at a table working collaboratively to design the truth, right? You've got everyone making these individual truths about the world. How do you keep up with what is the truth? Who is actually designated to be that master? record keeper that that master tracker of what is this world and what is truth and what is not truth especially if you get into players who may try to untruths other people's truths when they get privilege right yeah so that could get really messy really quick and i don't think there's a good way to keep up with that yeah and untruthing other players truths is expressly forbidden in the game but you're right man Six people in a, in a fairly mechanical game, invoking and compelling and winning wagers and telling truths. Someone's got to scribe all of that because I could definitely see multiple players at the table arguments erupting on. No, 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 no. That's not what we what we already said earlier that this other clan doesn't have any ninjas, and now you're saying that they do. And like just keeping up with that would be ridiculous. Yeah especially for those age mechanics to come into play, Mike, you've got to play a long-running campaign. Yeah. Who's keeping track of all those truths from all those sessions from all these campaigns? It, it, it almost seems impossible, right? And I would be really interested to hear like an actual campaign or an actual play from a group who's been doing a long-running Blood and Honor campaign. That, that'd be something I'd like to be a, a fly on the wall for. Same here. And And – I know that John Wick plays this in this game because he talks. He has, he tells great stories in the book. And let me emphasize, I was in love with this game before I played it. He tells great stories in the book about these fun sessions that he played with his playtesters and with his friends, and they sound like great sessions. And I was all up for playing this game. And the expectation just didn't meet reality. Not for me anyway. Uh, yeah, to your point, I would love to consult with some people who did make this work. Even at work, Mike. We'll use software solutions, and like it just doesn't work for us. And it's like, well, are we the problem, or is it the software? I think it's the software because I use other software just fine. But maybe there's just some huge mental block that I'm just not getting. And if someone explained it to me, I'd be able to use this tool correctly. I would love to see someone use this tool correctly. Yeah, no, that's that's I agree with that. And and part of me wonders, right? Are we being are we being too literal about this? Are we putting too much thought into it? Are we are we taking this system of privilege where maybe truth isn't actually the truth? Maybe maybe privilege is just you say something that affects something in the now and that that eventually becomes undone or unwound or forgotten, right? How how specific are the mechanics to this game? Yeah. Or or does the GM actually still have some finite control over his players where the GM ultimately gets to ignore their truths on a long enough timeline? Yeah, so so here's my plea to the audience out there is if, if you when we talked bad about Savage Worlds, we could all see how Savage Worlds would work great at a physical table. Like there's nothing about Savage Worlds where I'm like, this just doesn't work. 
it didn't work for us electronically, but at a table with cards, you know, with all the stuff, with the tokens, I can totally see how Savage Worlds could work and work well. And you and Brian had a great experience at Con with Savage Worlds. Yep. So our Savage Worlds complaint when we when we you know whined about that was very specific to the milieu in which we were playing. My complaints here are much more severe and endemic to the system itself. And I, I would love to hear from someone who has figured out how to make it work. I would love that. That's a great point, Mike. All right, the last threat. The last threat's identity politics. And I hate using that term because is it positive? Is it negative? You know, let's be clear. Mike and I are, are inclusive. Everyone should play. Um, we both have a lot of things going on in our in our families and lives and friends, et cetera, where, where we're friends with everyone. And and we think you should be able to be friends with everyone of all, all sorts of diverse backgrounds and experiences and, and everything um the game dog whistles are a threat for this game because blood and honor was the motto for the hitler youth blood and honor um so the dog whistle right there in the title of the game the misogyny the whole chapter on women the baffling baffling decision to include the n-word in its entirety not in dash word the full n-word he was making a point about another word um, a Japanese word about members of, of the lowest caste of feudal Japan that, that is a horrible insult today. He wasn't using the N-word casually. He was trying to make the point that this other word is as bad as the N-word. But instead of saying N-word, he typed out the full N-word. And it's a baffling decision. So many decisions in this are baffling. That didn't add anything to the game. So again, who does this game serve? Mike, John Wick was courageous enough to say, hey – a Western guy creating a game steeped in Eastern philosophy and leveraging samurai could be taken as cultural appropriation, but I'm still going to make this game. I'm still going to put this game out there. All right, cool. Bold decision. You're already you're already making a bold decision there. And then to say, hey, to make this very minor point about a Japanese word that is very stigmatized today, I'm going to use the most stigmatized word in the English language in its entirety just to make that point. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it either. I don't, I don't know why you would do that, right? And in publishing something too, right? And, yeah. and putting material out there to be consumed ultimately by the larger public, right? It, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. And it, it, it takes something that that I think could have been better, could have been, you know inclusive for a lot of people it could have been something that maybe has some mainstream appeal and it just kills any chance for that mainstream appeal yeah i I hate it when people leverage criticism at something that destroys the very thing that it is right like when matrix came out and everyone's like oh there's gratuitous violence you know couldn't he have killed one one guard and not not a hundred guards when he stormed the building like no he couldn't have that's what matrix is it is over the top that's the point that's not what we're doing here, Mike. We're not saying fundamentally change the game. We're saying remove one paragraph on women, and we're saying remove several letters of a word and replace it with literally hyphen W-O-R-D. That's all we're saying. Or you don't even have to, to, to do that far, right? You can simply say that this, this Japanese word that's highly offensive and should not be used in good public is like any other word that's highly offensive and should not use in good public. You don't even have to draw a parallel because you've already baselined that it's a highly offensive word that you would not use in the general public. 
Yeah. Or yeah. even amongst your friends if you're, you know, a good person. And I'm sure someone's listening saying, you know what? I see John Wick's point. It is just a word. And I should be able to use this word because we're all adults. And I should especially be able to use this word to illustrate how bad another word is because we're all adults. And I hear that. But on the other hand, being controversial, you're already controversial and and culturally appropriating samurai for this game. And I'm cool with that because that's what the game is. Why court more controversy? Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. Sometimes you look at a choice that you're making and you you ask yourself, is this the battle I want to fight? Do I want to tank this – you know, 130, 140, 150, whatever it is, page book. Do I want to stake that entire book and its success on my right to use this one word or my lack of right to use this one word? It's just a baffling choice that's nothing to do with the core of the game. And then the title. I would love – there are many times in life, Mike, where I'd love to say, I wonder what would have happened if I would have Googled this term in 2010 – but today, when you Google blood and honor, amongst the first results – in fact, I'm going to do it right now. If not the first result, is the Hitler Youth slogan, blood and honor, Google. Very first result, blood and honor, Wikipedia. Blood and honor may refer to the German, yeah. blut and honre, the motto of the Hitler Youth. Blood and honor, second result, is a neo-Nazi promotion network and political group. Blood and honor – Third result, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, based in the UK, Blood and Honor is a shadowy international coexistence co- coalition of racist skinhead gangs. Um, so I can tell you right now, even back in 2010, those would have been the same search results, right? Those those are not things that are endemic to you know any modern politics. Those are things that have existed and been known since the 1940s all the way up through the early 2000s. Those those still would have been your top search results, and it, it does make me wonder, you know, with the obvious history that's there was this an an uneducated thing did did he not understand or is this something that's that's intent to draw certain attention to this game and this mechanics right because it's it's hard to make that argument that it's innocent because as soon as you're like we're playing blood and honor i was like oh wait hold on that's something in my head that i think i know what it is let me double check oh my god yes it is okay wait no it's a samurai game i think we're okay right yeah that's- and that's and that's the point of a dog whistle right is, is to be yeah. tough to recognize um, man, I, I, I don't know. I don't know him at all. Obviously never met him. Never, never seen him in person. Uh, I don't even right. know if I've seen a picture of him. I'm not going to call the guy racist. No, 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 no. But I am going to say he should, he should have, well, yeah. he should have Googled the name of his game. A- absolutely. Right. Especially if it's something you're legitimately putting out there for mass consumption to be marketed, to be purchased, to be bought, whatever. Yeah. And Part of being a professional writer, so I, like, I haven't written fiction, right? I haven't put game systems out there. But my job for many years was to be a technical writer, and that's still a lot of my job internally today. And you learn as you – so I was a professional writer for, for years, and I still do a ton of writing in my job today. It's for consumption in, inside of a company and not outside, but I'm a writer. And in writing, you learn that audience is king and the perception is king. And if I write a passage in our knowledge management system that draws a lot of questions, then I can't look at it and go, well, gosh, this really specific word that I used makes all the sense in the world and everyone else – it's everyone else's problem for not getting it. No, I do not get to say that. You have to bow to your audience and you have to choose your battles 
so that, that that's the whole point of editing. The whole point of editing and commercial writing is that you have to take these things that you love and you have to murder your darlings. I forget the lady who said that, but she was a famous writer, murder your darlings. You have to edit your writing. You have to make these choices. You have to kill these things that you love to make the game consumable by mass audience. So these are not huge concessions that we're asking for. I'd agree with that. Absolutely, I agree with that. I don't think there's there's a valid way to disagree with that. It's it's the most basic thing that you've got to do when you put something out for the public. Yeah, just a couple of basic things. All right, <sighs> that's it for that. That's all the SWAT we'd had identified. I, I do want to have some concluding conversation here. So, I did screw up. Anyone who listened to the previous episode of the show knows that I didn't GM that perfectly as well as I could have. You know, I was prepared for this really collaborative game, so I didn't have a lot of my usual prep done. I didn't know where the NPCs were going. I didn't know where the story was going. I didn't know where a lot of the stuff was going, so I didn't have things ready. Here's one thing I messed up, Mike, is when you lost privilege, I was kind of at a loss. And what I was supposed to do was step in and take privilege and then I say what happens next in, in no uncertain terms. That whole failing forward lesson that we've learned previously, I should have applied it here, and I didn't. So for all the criticism that we've just leveraged at Blood and Honor, I will be the first to say I screwed up in running it. I messed that up. I could have done that better. I gave you the reins too much. I asked too much from you. And when you didn't make your role, I was kind of like, oh, uh, well, you, I guess you don't get to say what happens next. And I didn't jump in and say what happens next. I did I did a bad job with that. Um, I could have done better, but here's the thing. I'm not going to. I'm not going to play this game again, I don't think, unless you have a burning desire to, Mike. No, I don't. I don't feel it. So anything anything you want to sum up here at the end, Your your final thoughts? I think it's kind of what we always say in this game, right? Or in this show. Don't don't take our word for it. Definitely feel free to give it a try it yourself. It it may be the perfect thing for your group, for your party, for your friends, and that's that's a okay. And again, if there is anyone out there who's running or has been successfully running a blood and honor campaign, especially a prolonged one, we would love to love to love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter, whatever. But uh, I, I still would really like to see someone who's playing this game and, and how it's going out for them. Yeah, that's fair. Mike, I gave this game to Tanner for Christmas. Uh-oh. Yep. I sent him a PayPal, and I said, hey, this is for this game on, on JohnWickPresents.com. I had, at the point I sent him that, I had ordered my physical copy. It had not arrived yet. I had, I owned the PDF copy. I've owned the PDF copy for years. I had an account on JohnWickPresents.com, and I bought the PDF, and I read it. I didn't read it cover to cover. I never caught the N-word. I hadn't Googled you know, the meaning of blood and honor. I hadn't caught the chapter in women. There's a lot of stuff that I hadn't caught. I hadn't yet realized that the character sheet wasn't up to the task. I hadn't thought through what all of these aspects and compels and all the characters having different ones. I hadn't thought through what that would mean to actually the practical points of running a game. I was just sort of in love with the flavor of it. And I was in love with the stories that John Wick tells about running his, you know, sessions of these games and I was in love with the ideas of, of, of you know, rolling for privilege and making your wagers and, and, and letting the players dictate more. I was in love with those concepts. So I was in love with this game. And I'm now hugely embarrassed <laughs> that I took this game that I sort of half or a third read, fell in love with. I had a huge crush on this game, sent it as a gift for someone. Then I got my paper copy and I sat down to read it cover to cover to really dig into it. And I had so many, oh, no, moments. Oh, no. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, you know what no, I, I gave you, this to someone. Oh, no. You know what I got to say, though? 
I think if anyone could make this game work, I think it's going to be Tanner and his crew. I don't know. I that. think I, I think they could do it. To. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe this is like hashtag blood and honor challenge, right? If you have an actual play podcast, take the hashtag blood and honor challenge. See if you and your group could make it work. That that could that could make some interesting conversations. Yeah, I bet someone could if they if they change system quite a bit. Oh yeah, but that's All not right. part of the challenge. <laughs> So, Mike, three episodes on Blood and Honor. Um, none of it was an endorsement. Uh, we had we had a lot of feelings about it. We had a lot to discuss about it. I think we're going to put it behind us and move on to a uh, a different, broader discussion. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Mike, for discussing all this with me. You're welcome. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.